Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We've made it far enough along in this series that, by now, You've figured out one of my big weaknesses. Names. I cannot pronounce them consistently if I get them right at all. Not just for people, but titles and towns and anything with a name. It's terrible. I apologize. I don't know what I'm doing narrating an audio series anyway. Where are the pros? Well, one pro. Jason Fagone sat down with me the other day so that I could ask him about his extraordinary book on Elizabeth Friedman, which, despite all the other resources, was the text I kept coming back to. It's that beautifully written. And you've been listening to me say his name over and over as I credit him within the series for that work. You've been hearing me say, Fogone. Guess what? It's Fogoni, with a long E. So now, you'll get to hear the mortifying moment where although Jason and I have spoken before, I've never said his name to him. And when I did, he corrected it. And we're so far along, that I cannot go back and correct it for you throughout the narrative episodes. Mortifying? Please forgive me. Please forgive me, Jason Fogoni with the long E. And if you haven't purchased Jason's book yet, put this on pause and do it. Because it is extraordinary. And follow Jason's writing. He's a narrative writer for the San Francisco Chronicle with nothing but even more delicious storytelling to come. Let's begin. Hi, Jason Fagone. Hi, Stephanie. So, uh, so it's, it's Fagoni. It's a long E. Oh, I've been saying, this is yeah, what I okay. do. No, it's okay. this it's is, okay. just so you know, your name is in the series as Fagone the whole way through. <laughs> it's okay. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, okay. it's, it's just... Uh, I'll leave it up to you if you want to if you want to keep consistency. No, no, we're gonna keep we're gonna say Fagoni now. Like I don't ever want to affect an accent. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Does that make sense? So, and unless I can hear an audio of it, and you know, I just so the audience knows we've talked on the phone, um, and you know how excited I am about your book and and how important and instrumental it was for me. Um, but I never said, I've, I've been saying your name as a whole name. <laughs> you have one of those names where I've been saying it all together and incorrectly now for months. Oh, so just like, I, just like one, one run out, like Jason Fagone. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's okay. it. <laughs> all right. 
It's all right. Okay. It's it's okay. Don't worry about it. I'm 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 glad that you're excited about the book. Uh, it's very gratifying, and I'm I'm excited to uh, excited to talk to you. Okay, great. I, I let's start with that because I'm so curious for everyone to hear how you came to discover Elizabeth Friedman and why you chose to write a book about her. That was one of the greatest, luckiest accidents of my life. Um, oh. So uh, 2013, I was reading about the history of the National Security Agency, right? The government's most secretive agency. It's, it's the part of government that listens to um, foreign communications and tries to uh, decode them, figure out what people are saying. And um, I was looking into the NSA because of the Edward Snowden story, um, you know, this big, big story that broke about the NSA gathering phone records of ordinary Americans, which most of us didn't know that they were doing or were supposed to be doing. Um, so I was reading, reading this book about the guy who is said to be like the spiritual founder of the NSA, this guy, William Friedman. And um, William Friedman is, is said to be the greatest code breaker um, uh, whoever worked in America. Codebreaker is somebody who solves secret messages without knowing the key. And he was like the man, you know, if you go to NSA headquarters, there's a bronze bust of William Friedman's head. He's, he's the guy who kind of started it all. But, but the book mentioned that he had a wife who was, who was also a codebreaker. And that's kind of how it was mentioned, right? He had a, he had a wife who was also a codebreaker. And so, um, and her name was Elizabeth. And I thought, well, that's interesting. How many husband and wife code-breaking teams can, can there be? Um, and so I went looking for more information about Elizabeth and there was almost nothing. And I thought that was really interesting. You know, so maybe it meant that Elizabeth wasn't much of a code-breaker and didn't really do anything that, that was that important. But, um, but maybe there was something out there that just hadn't been explored. And so, um, you know, as, as, as a journalist, you kind of get, you get like an instinct sometimes. <laughs> and I, I just had this yeah. instinct that there was, there was something there. And so, um, so I, 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 I lied to my boss one day. I said I was sick. And I went to this, uh, I took a visit to this library where Elizabeth had donated a bunch of her papers before she died. And I walked into the library. They took me back into this vault behind a metal door and they showed me um, 22 boxes of letters and diaries and worksheets that Elizabeth had, had left. Um, and so I, I just pulled out box one and I started looking at the first file and I began reading her letters and yeah. uh, it was immediately clear to me that this, 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 this amazing story just kind of jumped out. It was the story of this petite, charming Washington DC mother who happened to have a double life. So unbeknownst to pretty much everyone except her husband, Elizabeth Friedman was like, secret weapon of the U.S. government because she yeah. had this amazing superpower. She, she could solve pretty much any secret message without knowing the key. She was one of the greatest code breakers in the world. Uh, and, and, and nobody around her knew that. But the government knew it uh, and they needed her. And so they kept on recruiting her into these um, incredibly dramatic and important missions. And each one was like wilder and and uh, more high stakes than the next. And so her life was just the series of escalating um, adventures. It really was almost like a, like a superhero story. And all of this was kind of there in the, in the letters and the worksheets that I was reading, but I had never heard any of it before. I'd never read this, the story, it, it didn't exist. It was just kind of like there in the archive. And so that's when I became obsessed, Stephanie. I just, I sensed that I had, you know, gotten really yeah. lucky. I'd stumbled into this thing and, um, 
and I was going to do whatever it, uh, whatever it took from there to get the story out into the world. I understand. And you did. <laughs> How much did you work with the Marshall Foundation? What yeah, was your relationship with them? Yeah, the Marshall Foundation, as you know, that's that's where Elizabeth left her left her uh, papers uh, before she died in 1980. That's where Williams' papers are as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, they were essential. They they are they are uh, the ones who have sort of kept yeah. the flame alive. They've um, they've they've stored, they've uh, categorized all of the stuff that the Freedmen's left. They've made it available to the world, and yeah. it's no small feat because they've they've had to actually fight against the NSA. Uh, a, yeah. a number of times to, to make <laughs> to make these records of it because remember this is like some of the stuff is is uh, completely interwoven with the history of uh, the most secret uh, government agency right. in the country, right? Um, That's right. You know there are stories going back into the 1970s of guys from the NSA coming to the library and trying to remove uh, some <laughs> of the materials that the Freedmen's had left there for people yeah. to, to see that the NSA didn't want them to see. And so so yeah, the the library um, the library was totally essential. Yes, it, it's amazing. And you know, and I've, I've told the audience this and I've told you this, that, um, you know, I come from the side of keep it for some things. Uh, it's national security. <laughs> you right. know, it, it's like it's uh, understanding uh, the importance of that, um, but also the need to educate America, <laughs> you know, on the work of of the folks that actually really are protecting us. And so what I found so compelling about the way you wrote about Elizabeth, who I'd known about for years as well, um, but I couldn't, I couldn't see a way into uh, to writing about her. I think the way you did, it felt like it was going to be 12 books. <laughs> If I tried to wrap my arms around it, and I'm, I'm an yeah. adapter for a living. I generally, uh, you know, in my old career, uh, they would give me a book series and say, "Make this a sixty-page pilot," and you know, my brain would explode. Right. So, um, but I found her, I found her stuff to be the opposite because there's just so much context you have to provide for all of these moments in history where she was instrumental in order for everyone to grasp the the scope of what she was doing all by herself um and how miraculous her mind was and i think her ability to work with other people her yeah. ability to manage that environment not only as a woman but as a leader and all those egos in there and all those other brains in there that are you know processing a very high level all the time and all of the secrets and balance it all and figure out okay how are we still going to get our task accomplished because people are trying to throw bombs at us <laughs> right, right. Or, our gangsters are like shipping heroin right you know and, and you know it, this is a problem and so how do we you know she navigated that i found with such a grace and and elegance that just blew me away and so unless you have like that itch that you had of i'm going to get to the i'm going to get in here and find out what you really really did um it, it's difficult for people to understand how massive it was historically um and what an impact she was having on the world right yeah i mean you're, you're right it is daunting to approach her life because she just did so much so well at such a high level um, for such a sweep of years, and it, and it really is like any one 
episode or adventure in her life would be totally enough for any other, you know, mortal, right? <laughs> like, um, you know, Elizabeth, yeah. just the things that she did in her 20s, you know, when she was a young, um, yeah. recent college graduate, uh, trained in poetry, just the stuff she did when she was 23, 24, 25 years old, um, you know, w w would be enough for anybody to, to write their own legend that, you know, that was... Yeah. Best of time, right? Like in her night in her twenties, Elizabeth was, um, you know, one of the greatest code breakers in the United States. Full stop. She she went from knowing nothing about code breaking to becoming one of the best in the span of about a year, year and a half. Yeah, she did that during wartime. You know, during World War One, when you know she was she was suddenly recruited into this very intense, high stakes effort to. Um, to crack uh, the codes of military messages that were pouring in from Washington D.C., right. they had no—they had almost nobody who knew how to break these codes at the time. Well, because, radio um, was new, right? Radio, there was radio a new was technology, new and, yeah. and code breaking was uh, was not a very well developed science in the United States. I mean, Elizabeth said um, that during those days, you could count the number of competent code breakers on the fingers of one hand, and she was—you know—she was one of them. Yes, and, she was. Uh, you know, and her future husband, William, William was another. But yeah, I mean, she, in the space of a couple of years in her 20s, she invented, a, along with William, a completely uh, new science of code breaking. She solved thousands of, uh, of wartime messages that, uh, you know, that contributed to the war effort. Um, and she launched herself into the next phase of her career, which, as you already alluded to, was like one of the most dramatic because she was she was recruited into this war against organized crime during it, you know, during uh, an era when uh, gangsters were just gunning, gunning people down left and right. And yeah. the government was, you know, at their wits end trying to figure out what was going on. They needed somebody to come in and um, and intercept and break these codes that these, um, you know, uh, global rum smuggling rings were were using to protect their shipments and evade the Coast Guard. And nobody could do that until, uh, you know, one day a, a Coast Guard captain showed up on the on the doorstep of again, this, you know, petite, charming Washington, D.C. mother and said, uh, Mrs. Friedman, you know, we need your help, uh, please. Uh, there's nobody else who can yeah. do this. Will, will you give us a hand? And and um, and, she, and she did. And uh, yeah, and I think was that was what two, into this world. Yeah, yeah two, like two years of intercepts uh, of just the, from the, that the Coast Guard had she cracked in like three months time by herself. Like three months. Yeah. As yeah. a freelancer. I mean, she wasn't even an yeah. employee. They just kind of they gave know. her a special agent badge, you know. <laughs> uh, they would they would basically they would drop off a, a thick packet of um, garbled messages on you know on her on her doorstep and and uh, say Mrs. Friedman see what you can do with these and she would uh, she would solve all the messages sitting sitting in front of her fire you know with her young daughter uh, you know playing in the same room that she would sort of go into the city into the Treasury Building and drop off the solved messages sort of hoping that you know, the government wouldn't need her anymore. And, but of course there was always like a new packet that she would have to pick up with new messages to solve. Um, Cause they were constantly pouring in and there was almost nobody yeah. else who could, who could do it as well as she could. I'm just really determined to find out. <laughs> we edit. It wasn't, I can't find it. I'm going to have to dig into those Marshall archives really deep someday, yeah. like camp out there for, for a couple months, because, you know, somebody, I know enough about the syndicate, of that run running to know how coordinated it all was and who was behind most of it. And somebody had a cipher machine there because yep. every time she was cracking it, um, they were changing it, right? And she would crack yep. that. And so um, I have my theory about who it might be. I won't share it here, but uh, it's kind of obvious when you when you listen to the series. But I I I'm 
I feel like I can find that unless the NSA decided that had to be <laughs> squired uh, away. You, as well, well you, may, you may know more about this than, than I do, Stephanie. I'm, I, I would yeah. be fascinated to hear your theory. All right, like, we'll maybe, go together. Maybe, maybe, yeah, okay. All right, we'll go. We'll go we'll and we'll camp out. Um, <laughs> good. Well, I mean, you're right. I mean, the, the, these, uh, these rum runners had a lot of money, right? And so they could oh, hire yeah. some of the best uh, uh, cryptographers in the world. I mean, they, in the 1920s, these guys were able to hire like very top uh, British uh, cryptographers who had, who yes, had uh, developed very safe systems during World War I. And so, you know, Elizabeth was, was very impressed and, and uh, um, you know, faced, faced a really huge challenge in trying to break these rum runners' messages because a lot of them were tougher to break than, um, you know, than German messages had been during World War I because the, the science had just of making uh, secure systems of, of writing had just advanced. Uh, and these rum runners were taking advantage of it. And so, yeah, yeah. the Coast Guard couldn't, couldn't make heads or tails of this stuff un until they... They brought in Elizabeth, and and she she complained about this uh, uh, for years, right? Uh, because this was a perennial thing that would happen to her in her life is that she she used to complain that the government keeps showing up on my doorstep asking me to solve puzzles <laughs> for America, and they yeah. will not leave until I, I give them the answers <laughs> to these puzzles. But they always come back with more, uh, so yeah. they won't they won't leave me alone. But the fact is, she was just uh, she was indispensable. She was too good at what she did. She could not be left right. alone. And so any any sort of any sort of mission, any sort of wartime challenge, any sort of fight, fight against crime or organized crime that required a code breaker, um, you know, Elizabeth was, uh, uh, had to be there. She, she had to be used. She had to be, uh, she had to be exploited for her knowledge because uh, she was one of the best and because there were few others who were willing to do it. I think she really downplayed the level of protection that um, uh, Irie's office would have given her. Uh, I can't believe yeah. she survived that. Um, I really can't. I, those guys were. <laughs> she was in the heroin ring, right? Like, yeah, um, yeah. That don't, was. Don't you think she was kind of nonchalant about it? I mean, she was very nonchalant <laughs> about it. I take a, I take a lot of inspiration from her. Um, yeah. But it, but it's it's super scary when you're staring into that, right? Um, yeah. And I think because of her superior mind and and her analytic skill right and the, the part of her brain probably she was in as you said it was just another puzzle to crack and maybe and so much work that to step back from that maybe herself she stepped back from a lot in order for it, of the of what she was decoding in order to see the strategic intelligence behind it and be able to map out these empires um which was new as well no one had even approached law enforcement that way either right she transformed law enforcement um but uh, I don't know that she stepped back personally about these characters and what it meant that they were threatening her life. Um, and kind of, a, maybe that was just too much to absorb when you're a mom of, of young children and a wife, right? It just, you know, she just kept going. <laughs> she just kept going. Hey, U.S. Cellular customers. I've got good news, so don't hit skip forward just yet. I'm talking about their special customer event, Us Days. What's Us Days? It means exclusive offers just for their customers, just to say thanks, like up to $1,200 to upgrade to any new phone. No, I didn't misread that. That's up to $1,200 off. They must really like y'all. Us Days at U.S. Cellular. 
Exclusive offers just for you, just to say thanks. Right now, U.S. Cellular customers could get up to $1,200 to upgrade to any new phone. Visit uscellular.com for terms and restrictions. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. So I wanted to ask you, of all of her chapters uh, in her life, not necessarily chapters in your book, but the chapters in her life of the work she did, what did you find the most challenging to try to articulate for us? Because it's not easy to talk about the method and process of code-breaking, but also these very complex syndicates and or spy, you know, in World War II, the Abfair spy you know, uh, rings that she was, sure. and even before that, that she was, um, she was cracking, right? That she was mapping out. So was there one, one thing in particular in her journey that you were like, oh my gosh, how do I explain this? <laughs> yes. Uh, the biggest challenge was the World War II chapter of her, uh, of her life. Um, yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, it was, it was challenging all around. Challenging, first of all, because I didn't know where the records were, and I wasn't even sure I would have access to them. I, I, I was worried at first. Um, so the World War II files were a very mysterious and intriguing gap in the records at the Marshall Foundation. So I, one of the things I noticed when I, um, when I sort of camped out there and went through everything from start to finish is that um, you know, there were records up until about 1938. And then there were records that picked up again in 1946 and went to her death in 1980. But there's nothing where World War II is supposed to be. And that's a super suggestive gap, right? Like, what are the chances <laughs> that the government just let, <laughs> let her sit out World War II? Seems, seems almost nil, right? She must have been something cool, something oh important in World God. War II. So I, I just had this feeling. But, um, but I asked around and nobody... Uh, everybody told me that like, nobody knows where her World War II records are. Nobody's ever found oh, them. Oh, wow. And, and then I asked um, somebody at the at the library, at the university there, who's done a lot of research at the library, and William is an expert on William and William's files. And she's had some battles with the NSA over sort of trying to get access to William's sure. documents. Sure, sure. Um, uh, Professor uh, uh, Rosemary Sheldon, great, great, uh, great person, uh, yes, great researcher. Yes, yes. And, and I said, I, I said, do you think that the NSA has Elizabeth's World War II files under lock and key? They're classified in some safe somewhere. I'll never get access to them. And she said, you know, I, I don't know that the NSA is keeping these things secret. I, I really wonder if the NSA just literally doesn't know where the records are <laughs> because it's the government. Yes, and, most likely. And, and, yeah. and that, seemed, that seemed totally plausible to me. And Wait, what she was really was saying this? is... so. When was this? When, when was I talking to uh, uh, yeah. Professor Sheldon? So this was pretty early when I was uh, uh, working on the idea and doing research. It, I guess it would have been in 2015, early 2015. Oh, my. I will have to check and see if your request actually activated <laughs> my, my uncle. <laughs> Oh, it may, it may, well, so all of that declassification stuff that your uncle was involved in on the NSA side was kind of happening concurrently. 
Okay. Um, you know, I think I think the my my sense is that the NSA obviously took a, took a huge uh, reputational hit from the Snowden revelations, right? And they were NSA was revealed as having done this this very secretive thing. Um, that well, a lot of kind people, of. A lot of I mean, it, it got weaponized. To. Yeah, it got, it got weaponized. It got weaponized yeah. but, but it was not so, really <laughs> collection and spying are not necessarily the same things when there's processes involved. Just like espionage and whistleblowing are not the same thing. <laughs> um, I mean, there were a lot know. of subtleties around the around the yeah. whole Snowden thing, but from from the I think from the agency point of view, they they definitely took a sure, reputation hit. Sure, at that right? moment, they at did take moment. a reputation hit. And they were hit. and they yeah. were um, trying to do something to show that they were um, you know, they were being transparent and they were acknowledging yeah. kind of their legacy and their history and I think part of that was you know, uh, this, this really great effort and valuable effort, um, you know, for which historians should, should be uh, very, very thankful and glad of, of declassifying a lot of the Friedman records. But again, the, yeah. the, the declassification stuff was happening mostly around Williams records, not Elizabeth's. The, the Elizabeth's World War II files were, were not a part of that process, and, as far as I know. And they were in a completely different place. Uh, most likely, they were probably in the U.S. National Archives, right? So, oh, wow. if, okay. if you've ever been to the if you ever been to the U.S. US National Archives um, or work with that system, you know that it's like it's like one of the last undigitized places on on Earth, right? There's no there's no <laughs> yeah. Google equivalent of Google search for the, for the records there. Uh, it's, it's all Indiana analog. Jones. Yeah, it's Indiana yeah. Jones in the in the warehouse of the crate room at the end. But yeah, it's it's the warehouse scene in the end. You like you might you might find the ark. You might you might never find it. So 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 that was my that was my challenge was to try to find the ark. And so I spent basically a year and Whoa. a half digging through the warehouse oh to find the ark. And then finally, when I found the ark, um, it turned out that the stuff that Elizabeth was doing to break codes in World War II. Essentially, she was she was breaking um, the codes that were used by uh, a set of Nazi spies who were operating in South America, gathering information about the Allies, um, targeting Allied Allied ships with with U-boats, tracking their locations, doing a lot of dangerous stuff, um, and spreading their influence across South America. Ultimately, trying to flip certain uh, South American countries into the into the fascist bloc uh, to to aid Germany and and the Axis. And um, so this, so this stuff was happening. It was dangerous. And Elizabeth's task during World War II was to track these uh, Nazi spies in South America by intercepting the messages that they were sending with these secret radio um, stations and breaking the codes and then figuring out what they were saying and then using that stuff to eventually track them, um, send law enforcement after them, arrest them, and, and, and break these spy rings so that they wouldn't be dangerous anymore. It yeah. turned out that the, the way she was doing that was with um, much more advanced sort of code breaking techniques than she'd ever used before, including uh, breaking Enigma machines. Uh, twice, Enigma yeah. Twice, at least twice, yeah. So, yeah. so for, for me to understand the sort of technical side of how she was doing that was, um, was, was part of the challenge, right? First I had to understand it in my own head um, uh, and then I had to be able to explain it to, to yeah. readers without, without me getting confused and hopefully without uh, readers getting confused. Well, I had to read what you wrote and try to figure out how yeah. to say, because I thought it was very well done. I mean, you did oh, an excellent, you. excellent job with that. Um, but to walk people through that orally, right, it, it was uh, tough um, in terms of, okay, I got to condense this down because I'm also still talking about these gangsters over here. Right. Um, so I ended up with that, with World War II, 
and Elizabeth just giving her a whole episode. I'm like, okay, I had to get those gangsters out of there and just give it to her because it was so, it was so much. And still I was barely, barely touching on it. Um, so I, I understand. I think that's a, that's an entire series in and of itself of, of what was happening in South America, because we don't know that either. We, we yeah, really I mean, never it's, it's got just... this education on what was going on in Argentina, <laughs> you know, yeah. especially in Brazil. And what, what do you mean the Germans were over there? It's, it sounds kooky. It sounds like it ends up in some weird Netflix series and we all laugh about it and it's strange, <laughs> but it doesn't, you know, it was real. Yeah. It was very real. It was a very real threat. Um, and it was happening and no one was focused on it because everybody, all eyes were on Europe um, and some on Japan, some on Asia. So it was, um, you know, I, I found that fascinating. I'm so grateful you did that work. Uh, it was really, it's really, you know, I, I talk, I talk about your book throughout the series. I just keep telling everybody, just go read the book. <laughs> it's oh, so great, you. you know, and polite because it really is. Is there anything that you wanted to explore that you found in those archives that you just were like, okay, I don't have space for this either. <laughs> it's something, yeah. something like one thing that kind of broke your heart that you couldn't get it in there. Anything like that? Oh, that broke my heart. Well, there were, there were a lot of heartbreaking letters that she wrote toward the end of her life uh, around yeah. sort of her financial circumstances, which were, were very sad to me because, you know, the, both of the <sighs> Freedmen's they, they, they poured um, their hearts and their souls into their work and they served uh, the government with, you know, um, with great uh, talent and uh, effectiveness for for decades. And they got very little out of it in the end. They they uh, they struggled with money uh, continually. And Elizabeth had to, you know, toward the end of her life, had to ask her her kids uh, for money, which was very tough for her. But so it was it was tough. It was tough to see that 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 she struggled with just sort of the necessities of life toward the end in terms of things that were more more kind of fun or, or mysterious or intriguing there was a hint in in one file in the archive that she might have worked for the cia after the war after world war ii i uh, yeah i was i was never quite if, if you ever stephanie if you ever uh if you ever sort of pull on that thread and find anything i'm pulling I would, on it right now <laughs> I, I i'm pulling on it for like for my third season, I'm I will I'll oh, give it. everybody this hint. I'm pulling on it right now hard. Um, All right. So you you and I we are definitely making a field trip together. Um, yeah, okay. Well, yeah, definitely uh, keep me posted on that because I think I think there might be <laughs> there might be something that I was never I quite so able to too. track down. CIA yeah. like, CIA files. That was a whole other. I, you know, I feel like I had kind of had kind of mastered the the NSA part of the story and that was enough, you know, to, to wait yeah. into the CIA part was like a, a little uh, bit, yeah, a little bit yeah. daunting, but you know, uh, there was, there was also this constant question that I had about Elizabeth, which I think a lot of people have about her and about William when they learn their story, which is, I was super curious what they would talk about with each other at home uh, about yeah. their work, like what they talked about at night in, in bed right and i'm not talking about i'm not talking about sexually right i'm, I'm talking no, no. about like, like like are they sharing because they're holding all of that in their minds right yeah. and you're it's a lot i mean it's a burden beyond a, a typical workload right because it's the it's right. it's national security these are our secrets at, including our threats and really i think for william staring into evil the way that he stared into evil with purple right it just broke him right you were not wired our brains are not wired to do that um they're not i mean as skilled as they were as much as it seemed like their brains were wired to do the science they were doing to do the code breaking they were doing to do the craft and the art of that um 
emotionally, we're not, we're not prepared to just stare at evil like that. Um, so I, I don't no, know I how you don't share sad. that. Yeah. I don't know how you don't share that with your, with your spouse, especially considering how much they both expressed how in love they were their whole lives with one another. Um, so I, yeah, I'm curious about that too. What did you find? Well, you know, I think they both, I think you're right. I think they both carried this uh, terrible burden of secrets and they were unable to really relieve that burden by sharing with each other because they, they both worked for different parts of the government. Um, yeah. And each one had its own very intense secrecy rules, right? Like William worked for the army, Elizabeth worked for the Coast Guard, Treasury Department. Um, I think they knew the broad outlines of what uh, the other person was was doing at work, but I don't think they were really allowed to talk to each other. And, no. and I think that they really tried to follow those secrecy rules as painful as it was for them. Um, I, I mean, too. William once complained that if it were up to his superiors, he and Elizabeth would sleep in separate beds at night because people at the army were so worried that he was telling her, you know, the army's, the army's secrets at night. Yeah. And it, it was, I, it, I know it was painful for the both of them because like you said, they had, they had both um, sort of fallen in love originally while they were working together on these puzzles, yeah. solving puzzles at the same, at the same desk with, you know, like a lot of joy. Right. And creativity and, and just the propulsive, you know, wonder of, of, of it all, teaching themselves, advancing it's the science together in their, you know, in their 20s. It was just tied up in their whole story that they worked together, they were a team. And so as they developed their own careers and sort of drifted, drifted apart professionally, worked for different parts of the government, you know, they were, there was this enforced uh, professional separation and they, they found themselves sort of locked behind uh, a series of of, of walls that that kept them from connecting in the same way and that that was always uh that was always kind of you know one of one of the sadder parts of their stories for me yeah, but yeah I I, so. I, like anybody else I, I'm just I wonder if you know they're, they're both in bed at night and they're just like what happened at work today honey and I kind of <laughs> I kind of wonder if if you know if they did if they did talk about it and if they did talk about it what that what that sounded like yeah I I think for me it's it was, you know, collecting the data points on their lives, right? And sort of saying, okay, were they who they, it seems like they were. I always ask that, right? Um, yeah. Because we we build mythology so quickly. And here I am digging into all of these, you know, crime lords. And, and those mythologies that are set by my industry of television and film, you know, uh, yes, it's okay. <laughs> it kind of kind of gets it right in some ways, but gets it, categorically wrong in other words in, in a in a catastrophic way in terms of that those mythologies have kept people from understanding that these gangsters aren't glamorous and they're not just attacking one another they're actually profiting off of your misery right <laughs> and and so we can't you know we it, if if we could get people to get that um if i can help people to get that it makes it I find easier for people to understand why you don't do something like put a mob connected guy into the White House. Right? Like that's probably a bad thing to do. Well, right? you know, before you, know, you started this series, did yeah. you did you have a different view of 
who get who uh, uh, rum runners were. I mean, I, I I definitely did. I had this image of a rum runner as like a guy who just happened <laughs> to own a boat and liked to be out on the water. You know, he was ma- he was making some money on the side. You know, and the uh, law was the law was stupid and unjust. There you go. The you you deal? bought the myth. Yeah, yeah. No, I I've studied organized crime for years. <laughs> no, I know yeah. exactly who they were, and I know how coordinated it was, and I knew what kind of uh, what kind of blood was in that ocean, right? Um, yeah. That they were crossing, well and whose blood it was. So, um, and and how it all sort of shakes out um, when it comes to the categories where we put gangsters in for their heritage, for their their goals, and how we displace our own stuff on them, which is the wrong thing to do. What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To find Elizabeth for me, it was so hard to write her the closing you know, for both of them, I, 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 I'm going to come back to them, but I had to wrap them in this first series. And I was just, you know, crying my eyes out Aww. as I was doing that because they got me through so much of the stuff that I'd already researched and already been into. But I had to stare into these gangsters again and and all the corruption that they brought into the world of politics and the world of uh, of the rule of law. Um, and it's a very hopeless thing to to look at that. It just makes one feel, I think especially in the time we're living through, it made me feel like, you know, are there any good people? Where are the good people? Where are the people who are uncorruptible um, right. that actually fight for our freedoms in in a in an honorable way? And um, and that's what Elizabeth and William were for me. They really were my personal heroes as I that were helping me write all of this so that I didn't fall into just this hopeless despair about the state of the world a hundred years ago, all the way up to today. Um, So it's important. Yeah. And so it's just important for us to know the stories of these people, especially where they're civil servants, especially where they work for our government. because again, that all gets weaponized, right? And when you start peeling back who's weaponizing it, it's the same people who are making the money with the gangsters. And so, you know, uh, not to try to put the world in these stark black and white hat places, it's obviously much more complex than all of that. I just think we're at a moment in time where we we really have to start figuring out what we're going to stand for and how do you have integrity and how do we measure the integrity of others while we're going through that process. And I found them both to be these sort of bright shining beacons 
for me personally of like, okay, that's my model. <laughs> this is, this is how, you know, you just got to keep your word. You just got to do your job. You just got to do it for the right intentions. Um, so I, I believe that they didn't, they did that everywhere. So it looks like I would believe that they wouldn't share with one another, you know, what was happening and break those oaths. You know, Elizabeth's literally writing the oath of office for the OSS. I think she would take it seriously. So, uh, you know, but the burden, right? The burden of that, that's what we're asking. We're also asking people to take that on and, um, and maybe not understanding the personal cost to them for that. And I think I think your book brought a really great appreciation to everyone for that too. I really I really mean it. It was a very human piece of writing. That means a lot to me. Thank you. And and yeah. uh, like you, you know, the Freedmans became heroes of mine as I yeah. learned about them. Right. I mean, it was it was a wonderful. I, I actually I miss as as difficult as it was to write the book. I kind of miss the time when I was writing and researching it because I would wake up every morning thinking about Elizabeth and William Friedman. And I would go to bed every night thinking about Elizabeth and William Friedman and whatever happened in between in the world that was horrifying or scary or outlandish or, or depressing. You know, I, I, I had this, um, you know, I had this cushion and I had this place that I, that I could go back to and, and sort of uh, immerse myself in the, in the life and the decency and the honesty of these, uh, of these two people who, who had become heroes to me. And so it was, I don't know. It felt it, there was something about it that felt kind of healing in a very, yeah. in a very tough time. And uh, for me, for me, it was an escape. And I, I, um, I think some people who read who read the book, uh, you know, experience that that nice feeling of escape too, to to be able yeah. to immerse in the lives of of these people who were just so scrupulously honest uh, with each other and and honest uh, honest with themselves too. Yeah, and and in doing that had. You know, it's sad where the financial, uh, where they ended up financially, but had a had a rich career. Elizabeth wanted a career where she, that she wasn't just a teacher for her. She knew there was something bigger for her. She went yeah. looking for it, and boy, did she found it. So they had these incredibly fulfilling lives. It didn't impact their love. In fact, they loved each other even more. You know, it it, it enriched them. The the principles by which they lived just enriched their life. Um, and allowed them to have a family and, you know, and survive big things like depression um, and, and even death, right? William's death. So uh, it, it's a, it's a beautiful love story in the, in the center of all. I, of I love them. how you talk about this book and, yes. and talk about them. I'm just going to bring you on all of my, all of my interviews and just have, have, have you, <laughs> have you talk about the Friedmans. It's, it's great. I love, I love, I love listening to it. Yeah, well, I, it's, you know, this is what you get from a screenwriter. <laughs> we, <laughs> everything's about the emotion, right? Or or why are you doing it? Um, okay, what do you, I have to ask you this. Yeah. What did you think about Hoover? What did you learn about him ah. in reading about what he did to her? The worst. <laughs> the worst. I mean, so I, I don't think I'm breaking any news in the book by no. by by revealing that Hoover uh, was kind of a jerk, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the 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 funny thing about Hoover is that you know at every stage in his life uh, there were people around him who absolutely just despised him. I mean, even when he yeah. was in his twenties, <laughs> like his very first jobs of the government. Um, 
and yeah. all and all through his career there, there was there was just this sort of legions of detractors pointing out yeah like jay jager he's uh he, he's a dick um yeah but, <laughs> but it's uh, true but what i discovered uh uh through the lens of elizabeth and her her uh, experiences and conflicts with the fbi and with jager hoover was that um he wasn't just a jerk he was somebody whose whose sort of ego um, and his own incompetence conspired to erase an important uh, essential part of history and to actually obscure right. what really really happened during uh, the portion of the war that Elizabeth was was so essential to um, uh, to operating within and uh, it's because Jagger Hoover um, uh, went went out intentionally to take credit for work that Elizabeth did and work yeah. that her team at the Coast Guard did, that's that's probably the main reason that um, people never heard Elizabeth's story. You know, it's an incredible, yeah. incredible story, right? I mean, I can, I can say it in just a couple of sentences and anyone would want to know more. You know, a uh, mother of two is a secret weapon for the U.S. government. She helps crack crack codes during World War One. She goes after organized crime and gangsters. Um, uh, between the wars, she go, she destroys Nazi spy rings in World War II. She helps invent this modern science of an enor enormous power. She does all of that essentially as a code-breaking Quaker poet, somebody who is not a trained mathematician, but who, who becomes one of the most brilliant code-breakers in the world. All of a sudden, in her 20s, lives this uh, life of uh, incredible accomplishment and adventure, becomes a legend in her own time, only to be forgotten. Why? Why have we not heard the story? And the answer is Jager Hoover went out in public and said, hey, the FBI did all this amazing stuff. That's right. Um, uh, it, it, wasn't, uh, uh, it wasn't Elizabeth and the Coast Guard. He never mentioned their names. He said the FBI saved the U.S. public from this threat of Nazi spies in South America. We smashed the spy rings. Or we, reality, we took down Al Capone, in which he did not. Which he did not. His G-men did it nothing. Irie had, it was Irie. Yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah. So, so Hoover really distorted this uh, this important piece of, of history of World War II, made sure that the, the real story never got out and made sure that Elizabeth's uh, contributions were were not celebrated during her lifetime, uh, which led to a lot of the sort of financial right. troubles that she had later in her life. And and really, right. in a larger sense, it just it's just not what happened. Hoover distorted the whole history of this part of the war in a way that um, I just I just felt was wrong. And so so one of the things that motivated me more and more as I got deeper into the research and the writing was like I, it's not just it's not just uh, an impulse to tell this uh, story of this amazing person. It's like we have to write this wrong that Jagger Hoover That's right. <laughs> did, you know, because otherwise we'll, right. ne we'll never actually know. We'll never actually know what happened. In this right. He was an intellectual predator and a thief. How's that? That's he was, how a, he was a piece of work. He was a piece of work. He was a piece of work. Okay, good. <laughs> well, what is next for you, Jason Fogoni? What is next for you, Fogoni with the longy? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, so I right now I am. Uh, I work for the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm on their investigative team and a narrative projects team, and I work on on long term projects and investigative pieces for them. Um, I, I really love my job. Uh, they're they're amazing. I, I love my team. Oh, uh, I'm a new so I'm a newspaper reporter now. I I uh, I uh, it's I I'm sort of a staff writer, and so I'm not uh, in author mode right now. Um, I I my life is structured a little bit differently, but I, I'm That's always fun. sort of looking for um, you know I'm always sort of uh, open minded to ideas and looking for the next potential book. It's just I feel like I may have kind of spoiled myself with 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 uh, uh, the woman who smashed codes because it was such a lucky and 
serendipitous and wonderful kind of thing that I stumbled into. I kind of am afraid that I, I won't ever find another idea that I am as excited about or, or is, is kind of as great. So, so I, that's, that's like a little bit, that's, that's one of my big concerns about, uh, about the next book is that it kind of won't live up, <laughs> won't live up to this one. It won't I be as listen. much fun or as, as delightful. I don't know. Do you, how do you deal with this as a screenwriter? I mean, do you, do you have, ever oh, have no a one makes my like, stuff. Yeah. So it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> they pay me a fortune. They waste all my time. No, no, no. Yeah. It, it, there's beautiful scripts out there. It's hard because you fall in love yeah. with your characters. You fall in right. love with them and it's hard to say goodbye. And then, yep. You know, and then you move on, and, and but I don't know. It's always it is it, the passion that came out. Your voice is so strong, and the passion that came through in your writing, it just leapt off the page for me, and it and I was in. So that's you're gonna. I promise you, it's gonna happen again and again and again. It's just hard to see it. You can't go seeking it. I don't think that. Um, yeah. I also don't believe in a muse. I mean, I think you, the work of writing is just putting your head down and <laughs> putting words yeah. on the page and it's, it's going to come or it's not going to, or it's not, but it's not you know, sitting around waiting for something to strike is, is the amateur uh, move of all exactly. moves. But um, it, 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 I'm not, I'm not worried about it. I'm, I'm very curious. Okay. I got my eye on you. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I, we're going to be taking field trips. Um this is happening. Okay, I'll, I don't I'll know. try. To, I'll try to internalize some of your confidence <laughs> in me. Absorb it. Yeah, please do. Please do. Thank and you. and Thank you. you're so welcome. And I, you know, we're all gonna keep our eye out um, for for you at the San, San Francisco Chronicle. That's where San Francisco we're. Chronicle. Okay, great. We're gonna keep our eye out, and you just shoot it to me in an email, and I'll make sure I blast it out to um, to everyone on Twitter, which does okay, work. Okay, great. And we'll and we'll yeah. still have our we'll still have our own uh, adventure to the library. That's yeah, point. we can. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna pull on that CIA thread. Good. I'm determined. All right, <laughs> I, I'm psyched about that. I'm pumped. All right. Okay. Thanks, Jason. All right, Stephanie. It was so much really fun. Thank you so it. much. Oh my gosh, I really I really enjoyed it. The World Beneath is a production of Imperative Entertainment, created and written by me, LB. Our executive producer is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering is by Shane Freeman. Editing by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. The World Beneath is a five-season series, with each season consisting of ten narrative episodes and ten sit-down interviews. You are listening to Season 1, Treasure. Narrative episodes publish Monday morning and are sit-down episodes on Thursdays, wherever you find your shows. Or binge the entire season now on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And, as always, you can find me on Twitter at the handle at Lincoln's Bible. The Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. 
That's right, going away, gone, as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening, wherever you listen.